1: Welcome to episode 82 of the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, the host of the Observer's Notebook, and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. Thank you for downloading and listening. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomena. And publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, the Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, also known as the Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. It really does. I got to emphasize that. Okay, if you enjoy what you hear in the podcast and you like the content and you want to keep coming, because right now we have a few uh, donors to the Patreon, which I totally appreciate, but we need more to really keep this thing going. You can help us out by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous for $5, you get early access to the podcast before it goes public. If you can give $10 a month, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook, which is the handbook for the ALPO training program that I wrote. And for $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast, and we'll also throw in a year's membership to the ALPO. You can help us out. If you're interested, go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Observer's Notebook. And if you want to join the ALPO, it's only 18 bucks a year. What's that, two cups of coffee? Come on, join us. You can join us. Just go to alpo-astronomy.org. And we're also on the Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy up there at the top little blue search field. And also the podcast has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. If you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe. You can do that on iTunes. You'll never miss another episode. And now, episode 82 with Rick Hill. Coming back again, but this time we learn all about him in a member profile. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to the Observer's Notebook Podcast. We have a repeat guest on the podcast today. It's Rick Hill from our solar section. Welcome to the podcast, Rick. Hi, thanks. Yeah, why don't you give everybody a little two-minute introduction to yourself.
2: Uh, I started in astronomy in 1957. No, not Sputnik. I started (laughs) months before Sputnik uh, with the transit of Mercury. Uh, And a teacher brought a a little 1.6-inch unitron to school, showed us the sun. She had the wrong day because she did the UT conversion wrong. (laughs) But there Uh were sunspots on the sun, and that just – Really fired my imagination, and I was off and running at that point. And uh, later on in my life, I went to Kitt Peak, worked on the Burl Schmidt telescope. That job lasted 12 years, and uh, funding ran out.
1: Now, the Schmidt telescope was that that big white one, with the curved bottom, and that I used to see on photographs?
2: It's, it's the one, it's, it's the telescope itself is blue. Oh, okay. It's over the parking lot at Kitt Peak when you're in the parking lot, you look up to the west. And there's a, an observatory with a little house next to it. I lived in that house. Really? Um, two weeks a month. Uh, so um, I worked there for 12 years. And then after that, I snagged a job uh, with Lunar and Planetary Lab, originally working in planetary atmospheres and planetary occultations, two separate groups. Uh, when you're in astronomy, sometimes you put your job together by working for different groups. And then after those, the funding ran out on those, I worked for Catalina Sky Survey starting in the year 2000. Oh, okay. Right up to the end of my career in 2017.
1: Now, what did you do at Kitt Peak?
2: At Kitt Peak, I ran the observatory. The astronomers were in, at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. So they would send me we, uh, their, their request. Uh, sometimes the requests were literally laid out plans for doing the whole sky in a certain wavelength. And I would just pick the pick the areas where I was going to work uh, and which survey I was going to work on on a given night based on seeing and uh, availability of plates. Believe it or not, that was back in the plates days. It was <laughs> the end of photographic astronomy. Um, and uh, then I would send the data back to Cleveland, Ohio,
1: Okay. And the Lunar Planetary Lab, what was your function there?
2: Well, originally I was hired. They were worried how long I would stay on. In my job interview, they said, well, what is your commitment to this job? Uh, how long do you think you'll be able to stay? And I said, as long as the paychecks keep coming in. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, originally I worked with planetary atmospheres. Um, we analyzed the lunar atmosphere very st- uh, tenuous atmosphere, as you might imagine, uh, of refractory elements like calcium and, and potassium. And then uh, we also worked on uh, Mars water vapor, measuring the uh, um, uh, micrometers of water in the Martian atmosphere in a column you're looking through. That was, uh, that was fun. That was fun. We got to where we could measure a tenth of a micron of water in the entire column over a given spot on Mars.
1: Oh my goodness.
2: And uh well that, that job ended. Mars Polar Lander had an instrument on it that would would measure directly that water vapor. And when it crashed, mm-hmm. we no longer had anything that was going to give us a zero point to compare our 10 years of observations to. And so the job literally ended that day.
1: Oh, oh, well, I knew I was a GPL Sky that day too for the landing. The Catalina not
2: Sky Survey was after me to work for them because I had worked on Schmidt telescopes and was familiar with them. I was an optician before I was a, an astronomer and I actually built Schmidts. Oh. So um, I, I went down the hall to Catalina Sky Survey. I said, You guys still want me? And they said, Yeah. And I said, Okay, you got me. And I was out of work for about 20 minutes.
1: <laughs> now tell our listeners what the Catalina sky survey is.
2: Catalina sky survey is the premier, uh, asteroid survey, uh, for finding near earth asteroids. Um, I will, I will use it in the present tense, but I would say we find more NEOs than any other survey out there, including, uh, LSST or pan or, and, um, in, in terms of asteroids themselves, we literally have found over a hundred thousand asteroids. Wow. And now that I'm retired, I get to name them.
1: Yes. Yes, you do. <laughs> yes. Thank you for that. I appreciate it.
2: Oh, that's right. I did. You did one for you. That's right.
1: Yes, you did. Thank you very much. I, that was quite the honor. Yeah. yeah.
2: The the big holdup with that right now is the IAU. Mm-hmm. They are uh, very slow right now in, uh, uh, responding to uh, citations, uh, proposed citations. And I think the reason why is I think some of the other surveys are sending in like 100 at a time or something. Oh. Wow. And it's a voting system where they have to go on a website. and They have to vote yes or no on whether a citation is worthy.
1: Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, I'm glad they voted yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so talking about you a little bit, did a person or event spark your initial interest in astronomy?
2: Well, like I say, that teacher brought, the substitute teacher brought that little 1.6-inch telescope and showed me the sun. That really fired me. Okay. Uh, I was all dinosaurs and fossils up to that point. I still am largely into fossils. Half my garage is fossils from all over the world. Um, so uh, my father saw that spark in me, took me to a couple of star parties in Detroit, at the time, the school I went to was a little each school, uh, each room. And uh, he took me to a couple of star parties where I got to see other telescopes, which looked all like Mount Palomar to me. (laughs) And and, um, after that I got my own 2.4 inch ubiquitous 2.4 inch telescope. Sometime around 1960 or 61, bought it from J.L. Hudson's in Detroit, and I used that until I bought a RV6 huh? in 1965. The uh, so many amateurs had RV6. Yep,
1: I I, I I started off with the 60 millimeter refractor, and I went to an RV6 after that.
2: Yep, yep. It, it, it's a very common story, and um, then got out of the navy. Uh, I, I sold the RV six to buy a different telescope and I sold it to this young 16 year old girl and we've been married for 45 <laughs> years now.
1: Awesome. That's great. So it, well, you just you don't give up an RV6 RV
2: six that easy.
1: You, you have custody of the RV six still.
2: <laughs> and she's got a lifetime maintenance contract.
1: That's good. I love it. That's a great little, I, I wish I had sold mine when I did. I just, I don't know what I was thinking.
2: Yeah. But, yeah, Ken, uh, Ken Wilson, an astronomer in, in Virginia, same same kind of story. Uh, he sold his, wished he didn't. and uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. worked, Rich Kowalski also had one. You know Rich Kowalski yeah. from uh, the asteroids that actually were found and impacted the Earth. Right. Yeah, uh, he sold his RV-6 and went out and was always regretting it afterwards. Yeah.
1: It's a common story. It's funny how many people I interview for this podcast do. They started with a sixty millimeter refractor. It's a, it's really funny. <laughs> now, you're, what if I were to say, what what would be your dream telescope? What would be my dream telescope? Yeah.
2: Well, this eight inch TEC that I have, it's an F twenty Maksutov Cassegrain. It's pretty hard to beat that aperture for aperture. Hmm. But if I could have a I'd love to have a twelve inch version of that. Oh yeah. Um it's it the imaging images coming out of that telescope are spectacular. I'm not sure my sight would um be worthy of a twelve inch aperture. I had a C fourteen and mm-hmm. um I I was using the Questar one night and I noticed the Questar images were almost as good as the C fourteen and it kind of made me scratch my head. So I spent a few months making masks for the C-14 and checking on what happens at different apertures. Right. And it turned out I kind of maxed out around 8 inches, 9 inches for my sight, that beyond that, you didn't get any more resolution. You just got a brighter image that was fuzzier. Oh, my goodness. So I went and got got rid of the C-14, got the 8-inch, And I'm resolving one kilometer on the moon, just as I did with the C-14. That's what I'm able to do with the 8-inch.
1: Yeah, I recently got a 6-inch Mac Casagrain from Explore Scientific. And I've seen Jupiter and Saturn through a number of different telescopes in my life. This thing I'm calling a planet killer. It's given me some of the best resolution I've ever seen.
2: They're they're almost as good as a a refractor, except that you don't have a, a... something to gauge the wind. Yeah. (laughs) That's, and that's a big problem in the desert here.
1: Yeah. Now are you close to Phoenix? Is that where you are?
2: I'm in Tucson.
1: Tucson. Okay. Okay. Uh,
2: I'm uh, about 50 miles north of the border.
1: Okay. All right. Great. So, um, so what is your, your current equipment? What do you have? You mentioned a couple. Oh my
2: gosh. I have too much because my wife has been buying up telescopes at garage sales and thrift shops really (laughs) yes we we got one bedroom that's just all telescopes um but um well i give them away to kids when at halloween i take telescopes out in front of the house we show they have to look through the telescope before they can get their candy awesome and occasionally i have parents come up to me and say where can i get something like this and I will tell them a local telescope shop that sells a lot of used telescopes,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and um, I tell them to go there because they can save some money. And if they really can't handle that, I say come see me, and we give we'll set them up with a telescope.
1: Ah, uh, good job, man. That's and, awesome. And,
2: uh, yeah, and and there's a there's a lot of them out there that are just going to waste in in the yeah. front hall closet. So, for myself, the big one for me is the eight-inch TEC. Um, that's that's on wheels, mm-hmm. and uh, I, my observatory is a roll-out observatory. Um, <laughs> I just open the doors, the double doors, and roll the telescope out. Because here in the desert, with the heating, the daytime heating, uh, we're still getting hundred-degree temperatures right yeah. now, and uh, with the day- daytime heating that we get. Um, it can get up to one hundred and thirty in the observatory, and you really need to get away from the the heat of the observatory. Uh, they have a saying that I learned up on Kit Peak, and that is good uh domes are a good way to trap bad heat seeing that 's true and um, so you get out in the open and it's it works much better. Roll off roofs are very popular here mm-hmm. and I had one at my last house. So um, that's the main instrument for me. And then I I have also the uh, 4-inch Celestron Maksudov. Wonderful scope, excellent images. Um, And uh, I have the Questar. And uh, then there's Dolores' RV6. And and we have a plethora of other telescopes.
1: Great, great. Now, other than the sun, what what are some of your go-to things you observe?
2: Lunar and planetary and solar. Okay. That's it. I do also um, try to include one double star every night before I quit. Um, And you post a lot of these
1: images on Facebook as well.
2: Yes. I put some of those. I have imaged down to 0.5 arc seconds with the uh, 8-inch. at 0.5 arc seconds you get a um uh a double lobed uh image it's not separated uh, completely separated
1: That's pretty impressive.
2: Yeah, it's it's a nice scope, it really is. And yeah. I can't you know, the fellow that made it, he's Yuri Patrenin, he okay. he made, he's the optician for TEC, he is TEC. And he's up in Colorado and um when Chelyabinsk, the, the meteorite that, uh, uh, fell on Mm-hmm. Um, he sent me an email that day. He says, that's my hometown. <sighs> and, <laughs> and so he was sending me videos from there, uh, and, and translating them. And it was a pretty exciting time.
1: Wow. Now, now what brought you to the ALPO?
2: Oh gosh. Um, I'd known about the ALPO since 1965 when I wrote Walter. Mm -hmm. But the military intervened Uh, when I got out of high school. I was a poor student in high school because I would come home, and instead of doing homework, I'd throw my books on my desk, and I'd plop on the bed with a sky and telescope or an astronomy book. Um, I I wasn't motivated to do my classes. I, I was reading astronomy all the time. So I graduated with a very poor average, and consequently, Lyndon Johnson sent me a telegram about a month after I was out of high school, and I didn't want to go in the Army, so I joined the Navy for, <laughs> for four years instead. And so I didn't get serious about the ALPO until after I got out of the Navy, married Dolores, and we went to a uh, the Cooch Town meeting, AL meeting, in uh, 1975. And, uh, that's when I, I joined the ALPO and the AVSO.
1: Oh, okay. Now, what did you do in the Navy?
2: In the Navy, I was a radar tech.
1: Okay.
2: Went to double E school down in San Diego, then radar school in, on Treasure Island. And then they shipped me all the way to the other side of the country. I thought I was headed for Vietnam on an aircraft carrier or something, but instead they shipped me all the way across the country to Norfolk, Virginia, and I wound up fighting the Vietnam War in the Mediterranean Ocean.
1: Oh, my God. Well, that's 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 a good gig.
2: <laughs> yeah, just the luck of the orders. I mean, uh, I had no control over it.
1: Yeah, obviously, yeah. Wow. So you're now the solar section coordinator for the ALPO. How did that come about?
2: Um, Walter Haas, in 1982, sent out a questionnaire. He wanted to gauge where the... Where organization was um and um so one of the questions was do you think we ought to study the sun or something to that effect and um i responded enthusiastically that i thought that was true because i had been observing the sun since 1963 with my 2.4 inch refractor and the eyepiece filter that you screw on the eyepiece
1: right oh
2: i used those so yeah long. i
1: did too Oof. and
2: um that was uh, um, something I had done for years and years and years. And so he said, well, since you're so enthusiastic, you want to head it up, start it up. I said, oh, sure. I mean, you got to put your money where your mouth is. And uh, so I, I started the solar section back in 1982, and I ran it till 2004, one full magnetic solar cycle. And uh, then uh, I, it had a, several other uh recorders uh well <laughs> i would say coordinators knee recorders um and, and then they i took it back over after i retired when i had more time on my hands
1: okay and your hometown you said detroit's your hometown detroit
2: was where i was born and raised but okay. let's face it i've been living in tucson for 40 years now oh, okay I, this is my hometown
1: okay And so the Lunar Planetary Lab brought you there basically for work?
2: Uh, No, no. Uh, uh, What brought me here was um, the job at Kitt Peak.
1: Yeah, okay.
2: And uh, that that lasted for 12 years. That's nice. Jobs in astronomy run out due to funding. And, uh, so, uh, that, that's, that's how it works in astronomy. I mean, that there's no no other way to say it.
1: All right. Are you a member of any local astronomy clubs?
2: Yes, I am. The Tucson Amateur Astronomical Association here in, uh, Tucson.
1: Now are you very active in the group or?
2: Not really. Um, you know, they got, a, they've got a lot of really, uh, High-quality amateur astronomers—they really don't need to hear from me. Um, <laughs> you know, if they ask me for something, I usually produce it, and Dolores uh, often provides meeting space for them over at the Lunar and Planetary Lab.
1: Oh, fantastic! Yeah. Now, how are your skies in Tucson?
2: Uh, touchy issue. Um, My—I've uh, been losing about one tenth of a magnitude every, year, every two years since I moved in here 25 years ago into this house. Um, so Milky Way is just barely visible now. Oh my. For lunar and planetary and solar, it's fine.
1: Yeah, okay.
2: Um, I, I could do with better seeing, but that's all a function of local asphalt. <laughs> uh, it really is. I can map areas of my sky like Jupiter right now being at the low declination it's at, Mm -hmm. if it gets too far west of the meridian, there's the conjunction of two streets over uh, in the southwest from me. And where they meet up is a large cul-de-sac, which is a big island of asphalt. Uh, And I definitely see uh, bad seeing over that.
1: Yeah, and with the heat of the summer, too, just, Ugh, radiates. Oh, yeah. Not fun. Not fun.
2: It's not It's not unusual for the temperature gradient from your feet to your head to be as much as 50, 60 degrees. Yeah. Wow.
1: Now, do you have any interest outside of astronomy? You mentioned uh, you're kind of a rock hound.
2: Oh, yes. Paleontology. Our house is, we have cabinets all over the place and knickknack shelves full of minerals and meteorites, Dolores' meteorites. And uh, um, fossils as well. Uh, Fossils going back way before the dinosaurs.
1: (laughs) Now, do you go out hunting for these things or are they purchased? I used
2: to. I used to, but I've had both knees replaced and both shoulders rebuilt from accidents. And both hands had to be rebuilt from carpal tunnel. (laughs) I had carpal tunnel to the point where I could only use my little fingers at one point. So, um, you know, since that's happened, I'm not really good on the r- trail, but you know, like I say, I've got half a garage full of fossils that all need prep work. So I'm not, um, I'm not looking for things to do. Okay. And, uh, I've also got about a dozen bonsai trees and I run a local bonsai
1: workshop group. Really? Yeah. Now, how long have you been doing something like that? 35 years. What got you interested in bonsai?
2: Well, how did I get interested in that? I just kind of liked the idea of the little, little trees. I came from an area that was very forested in Michigan. I grew up in the forest. I was out there every day uh, as a kid. And um, it just, I kind of missed the trees, and this was a way to bring them in into my home.
1: So, Mr. Miyagi with the... Uh... Bonsai trees. He did, in, in, in the uh, Karate Kid movies had nothing oh, to that, do with
2: it. That, the, that cracked me up. I like his his advice that you make a bonsai tree by cutting away everything that doesn't look like a bonsai tree.
1: <laughs> That's funny. Now, do you have any hidden talents that you'd like to share?
2: Uh, okay, I uh, I play keyboards. Really. Um, in Detroit, when I was growing up as a teenager, I played in honky-tonks. I played ragtime and jazz with the Detroit Hot Jazz Society and, and Mother's Boys, which used to be a band in Detroit. Uh, perhaps my favorite time playing as a sit-in with them was in a boat on the Detroit River called the HFS Major Wilcox. Huh. And uh, they had a piano on the boat, and the whole band would get on the boat, and we'd go up and down the Detroit River playing music. Otherwise, it would be like Shakey's Pizza Parlors and <laughs> uh, things like that around Detroit. And I did that growing up as a kid, and then I stopped playing. Oh, about the time I got married, yeah. there were other things to do then. <laughs> and uh, one day, the church I'm at just said, is there anybody who can play an instrument? And I raised my hand, in knowing I hadn't played in thirty years, and it just—I took off from there. And now I actually put the ragtime and in jazz into the hymns. Really? Yeah, it's we have we have a fairly lively bunch of music.
1: Now I recently interviewed uh, uh, Jupiter Section Craig McDougall. Yeah, Craig is a fantastic saxophone player. And the reason I know that is he played it on the podcast. Oh. So do you have a keyboard handy?
2: <laughs> I do. Um, I don't think it would come across the computer very well. Okay.
1: All right. Um, well, I think the ALP on this particular band, I really do. <laughs> I used to play drums. I, I, can,
2: I can actually <laughs> send you, because I have it recorded in the computer, midis of me playing.
1: Do that, and I will add it to the podcast.
2: Okay. Okay.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. Great. I love it. <laughs> so what, what right now in your life makes you excited?
2: Makes me excited? Yeah, what are you
1: excited for right now?
2: Oh gosh, it changes from day to day. Um, one of the other things I do that is fun is I take in um, rescue cats. Um, the, we The neighborhood used to have quite a few of them and we took them all in, got them neutered, and now they're all laying around the house in various places.
1: <laughs> Dare I ask how many?
2: Nine right now. We lost one about two months ago to cancer. Oh. And we've got a 19-year-old right now that's kind of rolling to a stop.
1: <laughs> wow.
2: But otherwise, they are all uh, just fine and uh, a lot of fun to watch and be around. That's good. Um, So, but what gets me excited, I guess, is, you know, going out the next good clear night. Right now, we haven't had much clear weather in six weeks, maybe eight weeks.
1: Yeah, it's like monsoonal season for you there.
2: Right. And it's been very, it hasn't been very rainy, but it's been very cloudy. And I've lost many nights. Of course, I live up against the Rincon Mountains, too. Okay. And that means uh the the clouds will bump up against those mountains and hang there and uh at least the monsoon clouds come in from the other side the mountain so they come up over the mountains and then drop down but that that's the source also of my bad seeing I had better seeing at my last house which was in between mountain ranges down in the flats and you'd get nice laminar flow of air where I am right now cold air slides off the mountain about an hour to two hours after sunset. And you can imagine what that that yeah. does to the scene. Wow. Wow. Wow.
1: So is there any additional information you'd like to share with, with us about yourself or experiences that you had?
2: Um, I have no arrests on my record. On your record. Um, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> Actually, I was arrested once in 1972 in Chicago, but that's not a crime in Cook County. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, really, that—that's—I've shared an awful lot. Um, as you can see, my days are very full. Yeah. They—they uh, they say that's how you live a long time when you're retired—is uh, by staying busy. And if that's true, then I'm gonna—I'm gonna top 100. What? Oh, uh, because I'm—I'm always doing stuff, always going. Yeah, and so always- is Dolores. She's same way.
1: That's good. Um, yeah, I like to have something to look forward to. That's the way I am. I always got something I know what Absolutely. I'm going to be doing in a year. You know, it's just like it's, yeah, I like that. Cool. Now, I have a series of 10 questions I ask uh, all the people for this uh, member profile. So, you ready to go through them? Can I take the fifth? That's the oh. <laughs> first question, on a scale of 1 to 10, how weird are you? How weird am I?
2: I don't, you know, five, six. Five,
1: six, okay. Yeah. I think
2: anybody that stares at little points of light in the night <laughs> sky, okay, or, or or you know, I look at things on the moon that are billions of years or I look at things in my garage that are billions of years old. So, you know, that probably qualifies me as weird on a yeah. societal scale. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's probably higher than a five or six, so... <laughs> All right, what's the furthest you have traveled for an astronomy event?
2: For an astronomy event? Half a planet. When I worked occultations, they were occultations of small bodies like Titan passing in front of a star or Triton passing in front of a star. We would measure atmospheric scale heights and things like that on these bodies. And so that meant chasing these events, which are like, real skinny eclipse tracks on the surface of the earth. And the farthest one I ever did was probably Madeira Island off the coast of Morocco.
1: And what was that for? I can't
2: remember if it was Triton or Titania or something like that.
1: So these are moons of uh, planets. What's that that?
2: Yeah. Moons of planets. It was small body occultations.
1: Tiny points of light anyway. Yeah. And as they're in orbit around the planet, they're going to pass in front of a star.
2: Right. And you, you use a star out. like a standal, standard candle because it's, a, it's essentially a zero-dimensional uh, uh, source. And it, it, the light of the star passes through the atmosphere of that body, and you can measure to a very fine uh, level of detail the, the uh, layers of that atmosphere. Wow. That was an interesting trip also because on the way back, I told uh, my uh, principal investigator I was going to stop for five days in London because I'd never seen London. And my first day in London was 9-11. Uh,
1: so how many days do you end up having to stay in London?
2: <laughs> my plane was the first one to leave Heathrow on time about a week later. Wow. Um, they closed all the offices and everything. So I wasn't able to find that out till I got to Heathrow and I just took a couple of really good thick books with me and they were very good. Uh, they closed off the parking garage. They were feeding us. They were giving us stuff to drink. We had comfortable areas to sit and just wait. And, uh, it was, it was quite a time. It was quite an adventure.
1: That's, that's wild. That's, that's probably the, the, most obscure astronomical event anybody on this podcast has talked about doing, but it's interesting too, the work you could have done with that. Did you use photometry? Is that how you?
2: Yes. Yes, we did. We used CCD photometry. Um, There was another one we did where the track was going to go through Australia and we had sent our C-14s. We used portable C-14s then. We had sent the C-14s onto Australia and we were all set to go and observe the from the northern limit on in australia and at the last minute the refined prediction for the occultation these things get refined all the time and it it put the the occultation up in new guinea and we didn't have our shots for new guinea we didn't have our passports for new guinea so we told them to the people in australia send the equipment back we'll get it when we get over this and we found and i plotted the track on a, a world map and i found that the northern limit passed for brown through brownsville texas and really passports were good there
1: <laughs> i hope so
2: and so bill hmm. hubbard who was the principal investigator he had an ancestral ranch in marfa texas so we drove to marfa with all the equipment stayed there the the one night and then drove down to brownsville texas and we got good data down there in fact that was a uh, uh, a rather um, unusual thing, when we were setting up the C-14s, I looked through the eyepiece. Uh, I put it on Antares, looked through the eyepiece. I saw two stars, and I thought, oh, no, the corrector's cracked. And I ran around to the front of the telescope and looked, and, no, it was all all right. It turns out I was separating Antares by so much you could have put a truck between Ugh. the two the two elements of that star. It was I'd never seen it like that before or since. Wow.
1: That's good seeing
2: amazingly steady atmosphere there.
1: Wow. So what that's is one your... thing
2: Brownsville's got going for it. <laughs> yeah.
1: What's your go-to food order at your favorite hometown restaurant?
2: Oh, that's, that's a touchy subject. <laughs> uh, well, it's touchy because, number one, I'm a diabetic. Huh? Number two, in the last year, I've been diagnosed with pretty strong uh, lactose intolerance.
1: Oh, no.
2: So pizza was my biggie. But I can't have pizza anymore. Well, not pizza that you would call pizza. I right. have to have vegan cheese on it and stuff. Um, so you know, yeah, probably the the good old fried chicken.
1: Yeah, is there a particular restaurant? Churches. Ah, really?
2: Yeah, churches Church? makes. And, and that comes from a boy. I worked at Ten Mile and and I six ninety six when I was in high school at the Kentucky Fried Chicken there. And uh, I'll tell you, me switching over to churches is a big move. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you.
1: Uh, So what is your most memorable astronomical event?
2: Oh, gosh. The eclipse last year was a pretty good one. Or not last year, two years ago. Yeah. Uh, We were up in Casper, Wyoming for that. Oh. Uh, the eclipse in 1979 in Minot, North Dakota mm-hmm. was was another good one. Um, those are both, those rank pretty high.
1: Yeah. How, how many total solar eclipses have you seen?
2: I don't know. I never stopped to count them. Yeah. Those are the two best ones for yeah. sure. And I've seen a lot of annulars. I've mm-hmm. been on. Solar eclipse trips where we went to the northern or southern limit of an annular to get the Bailey's beads along the limb uh, for the uh, International Occultation Timing Association.
0: Right.
2: So um, you know it's 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 hard for me to say how many of them see. However, the exciting thing for me is not what I've seen, but what's coming up right. in twenty twenty three. There's an eclipse that passes through a town um, to the the um, West of San Antonio, Texas. And uh, I'm going to see if I can look that up here while we're talking. Um, And that eclipse will um, pass from west to east, I believe it is. And, uh, yes, it looks like it's from west to east. And that eclipse... Will pass through Vanderpool, Texas. Six months later, that's on October 14th. Six months later, a total eclipse will pass south to north through the same town of Vanderpool, Texas.
1: That's pretty cool.
2: I'm standing in the same spot for both eclipses. Uh, So I'm looking forward to that one.
1: Very nice. Yeah, the 2024 eclipse is going to be incredible.
2: 2023
1: and 2024. Now,
2: 2024, that's a partial. 2024 is
1: the total, 2023 is the annular. Oh, okay. I like annular eclipses too. They're interesting. Yeah.
2: Now, that, but you say that, and that brings up another one. Uh, There was an annular eclipse in 19, I think it was 91 January. Um, 1990, in, in September, we were out fossil hunting. And we were in a lot of wind, and the whole family got, uh, the next week, got a valley fever. Oh. And mine got deeper and deeper into my lungs until it turned into pneumonia. So I had valley fever and pneumonia oh. concurrently. I was very sick for about two months. Oh. And I knew in January this annual eclipse was coming up, and I wanted to duplicate a photograph by Roger Tuthill that was in Sky and Telescope, oh, back in the '60s, where he got the setting sun in a total annular eclipse. So it was this oblate ring.
0: Uh-huh.
2: And I went to California. We were, uh, uh, I think it was Encino or somewhere. It was right on the uh, beach. And we got it. I, I had just gotten well in time for that. I was barely healthy again. And we got went to that eclipse and uh, saw that oblate sun setting over the ocean. <laughs> it was it was an exciting uh, view, and I need to digitize those images because you won't see an oval ring that often. Yeah, that's interesting.
1: Now, are are, are there books that inspired you along the way?
2: Oh gosh, yes. Um, uh, My first sky book. Well, of course, the Herbert or what was it Herbert Zinn?
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: stars.
1: Stars. Yep.
2: Yeah, yeah. That was the very first one. It's useless. Uh, <laughs> the first one was All uh, Cotton Mayall, Field Book of the Sky. Okay. I spent many nights in the 1960s, first half of the 1960s, uh, looking up the constellations with that book.
1: I think that was in my library as well, yeah.
2: And I had a bunch of Patrick Moore books that I spent my lawn mowing money on. <laughs> And um, that that's a story too, because I was on Kit peak and they didn't like necessarily dealing with uh, um, uh, figures on TV and stuff like that, that would come to the mountain and want to film. So they said to me uh, one time, Patrick Moore's coming here with his entourage from England. Do you want to act as their host? I said, Oh my gosh. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, so I got all my Patrick Moore books and there's about a dozen of them and I put them on the table open to the front page and I had them all stacked on top of each other. And after we got done filming over at the solar telescope, that very angular solar telescope on Kit Peak. And, uh, we went back to the Schmidt, that little house next to the, next mm-hmm. to the dome where I work and, um, I opened the door, and I said, I'd like to ask you a favor. And he saw the stack of books. He says, absolutely. And he sat down, and he signed every one
1: of them. Oh, fantastic.
2: <laughs> and it was great. So, yeah, those books were very inspirational to me. And, in fact, his lunar book, I still do quote from time to time uh, to show the things we have learned, how we've advanced in our knowledge of the moon. I, I'll show something from his book and something from Chuck Wood's latest uh. book. And I'll compare them and things like that. In the, uh, this is in the articles I put on um, Facebook. Mm-hmm. I'm also regularly publishing articles on sacred space astronomy, which is the Vatican website. Really? Yeah. Huh. So that's sacred, sacred space uh, astronomy if okay. you want to see those. Yeah.
0: All
1: right. If you were stranded on a dark sky, deserted island, what telescope would you want with you?
0: Oh, I, I
2: can bring one with me. Yeah. Oh, well, that 8-inch of
1: mine. There you go. That's what I figured. Okay. Oh, yeah. Now, if you were stranded on a dark sky, deserted island, what music would you want with you?
2: Um, Gosh, I, I'm so eclectic in my music tastes. Normally, I have Baroque playing around the house, but I'm very fond of what's called space music, and we have several of the more famous space music composers here in Tucson, Steve Roach being one of them. Um, Hmm. I really like his music. He's one of these people where I can buy his album without having heard anything off of it. I know I'll enjoy it. Really? John Ceree is another one. He's in the Atlanta area. Uh, Real nice guy. I got to know him during a Peach State Stargaze. and uh, He just composes some of the most beautiful stuff. So, yeah, that, that's – it's it's very hard to say.
1: Okay. Space music, though. Yeah. Okay. Pretty much. Okay.
2: It's good for observing. It's good for contemplating.
1: <laughs> what advice would you give the 12-year-old you?
2: Get better grades. Ah. My life would have been easier. Yeah. Um, my – I tried to pull the same class clown thing that I did in high school. I tried to pull that in the Navy. I got called into the CEO's office and he, he looked at me he says, I've got your grades, your test scores here and I got your grades here and they don't match. He says, here's the deal. You're going to make them match. You're going to bring up those grades to match the test scores or we're going to give you this little radar. It's about a, uh, 18 inches cube. We're going to give you this little radar and a parachute and you're going to go count people on the Ho Chi Minh trail. And there's no retirement package for that program. And he knew how to motivate me. The yeah. next week my grades went up.
1: <laughs> oh my. Yeah. Fear is a good motivator.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh
1: my goodness. All right. Here's a tough one. Ready? Yeah. Cake or pie? Pie. No question what kind
2: Dolores's sugar-free apple pie
1: uh, you got to get the points in there Dolores' <laughs> sugar-free apple pie
2: no she spent years putting this recipe together really and tweaking it and it's better than ordinary sugar apple pies
1: okay is it is it
2: I've been trying to get her to we have a town nearby where they harvest apples it's called Wilcox, mm-hmm. and um, they have a big apple pie contest every year, and I've been trying to get her to enter because she'll win it hands down, no question.
1: Now, are the apples on the top, or is it covered like no, with a crust? It's a crumble top. It's oh, a crumbled. crumble top. All right. Yeah. I like that. That's, that's yeah. my favorite type of Yeah,
2: apple. and I used to be able to have it a la mode, but I can't do uh, that anymore. Yeah, the, the oh, sugar and dairy in one. one.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you, it could be yogurt or something, couldn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. no
2: <laughs> yeah. Yo- Yogurt. Just as bad as Gary. Uh, yeah.
1: All right. Who has had the most single influence on you in astronomy?
2: In astronomy, single influence. Uh, Walter's up there. Patrick Moore's up there. I knew them both very well. Um, but, you know, I'd have to say Dr. Peter Pesh.
1: Who is Dr. Peter Pesh?
2: He was the director of Case Western Reserve's astronomy department, the fellow who hired me uh, from Michigan to come out and run the Schmidt on Kitt Peak. That was my big break in astronomy. Otherwise, I would have retired from being an optician. I was an optician when I was living in Michigan. Mm -hmm. I built everything from from eyeglasses, which pays the bills, right right on up to large optics, an 18-inch telescope.
1: So he's the guy that saw something in you and gave you the break.
2: Well, the ad ran in sky and telescope and my wife saw it. Dolores said, why don't you apply for it? I said, because I got a, about a snowball's chance in an oven of making it. And she said, you, know, you don't know unless you try. And I said, yeah, you got a point. You know, so I went and I applied for it. And uh, sure enough, at, uh, a few months later, I got hired. And, uh, that was a huge sea change in our life.
1: Gave you all the confidence in the world too.
2: <clears throat> no, when you get out there and uh. see, I, uh, I quit in my college. Uh, when I was going to college, I had to quit my senior year cause Dolores got pregnant. I was working two weeks a month on kit peak and it was no way to keep up with the classes. Okay. And so I had to quit and take care of the family. And, um, that, you know, when you, when you know you're operating from that standpoint and you're working around all these PhDs, yeah, your confidence is, uh, should be a little touchy.
1: That's true. That's true. Yeah. Well, Rick, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. Have you, have you, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners?
2: Oh my gosh. I've shared so much now. (laughs) Uh, Would you like my social security number?
1: No, we'll, we'll hold that for the next time. Okay. Now, <laughs> uh, how can everybody get a hold of you if they want to contact you? Uh, Facebook is
2: the excellent way. Um, any of the ALPO contacts are good. Um, you know, my my email address is on the ALPO website, mm-hmm. and then there's the solar section uh, email list. Although I don't check into that as much as I probably should, I watch Facebook more.
1: Okay. All right. Well, this was a lot of fun, Rick.
2: Sure was. Thank you very much.
1: All right. You take care. Yep. Bye-bye. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the observer's notebook. I can want to thank Rick Hill for coming on the podcast and giving us a little insight into who he is and what got him into this great hobby of ours and stay tuned till after I have these closing remarks, there's a couple of little files. he sent me of him playing the organ, actually all the instruments on these. It's pretty wild. I hope you enjoy it. We upload a new episode of the observer's notebook every few weeks. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. It brings a lot more people to the podcast and it gives us note. You can also listen on iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon by giving up to $35 a month, where you will receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I want to thank the producer of this podcast, Steve Seedentop, for his generous support of the Observer's Notebook. The link for Patreon as well as the link for the ALPO is in the show notes. You can contact me via email at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at, at observers and BPOD. Until next time, my hope is you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening. And now, some music with Rick Hill.